What we're gonna launch in, as I said, in the Colossians, and this morning entitled the message, Jesus our King. Did you know the United States once had a king? Believe it or not, it's true. At least it was true in the mind of one confused man, Joshua A. Norton. Mr. Norton lived in San Francisco during, during the gold rush period of the 1800s. He was a colorful character. When speculation in the rice market brought him to a financial ruin, something happened in, in Norton's mind, and he began to declare himself king of these United States. It might have been a practical joke, or it might have been a result of a clouded, depressed mind. But whatever the initial reason, Norton's pretending soon grew to a delusion. In 1859, he published a proclamation that he was king according to the act of the California legislature. Excuse me. He found a sword and stuck a feather in his hat and found a cape, and he marched the streets in colorful costume. The citizens of San Francisco were amused by this and played the game with him. They gave him recognition with free tickets to special events. He was invited to a gala and opening events. In fact, they allowed him to collect a small tax and issue his own currency. It was all done in spirit of fun. But to Norton, it was serious business. In fact, he expanded his authority to king of these United States and protector of Mexico. And when he died in 1880, more than 10,000 curious people attended his funeral. One of the largest funerals ever to take place in California. He lived and died in his own delusion of grandeur. He didn't hurt anyone. In fact, he brought a bit of a smile and a chuckle to people who came across him and what he desired to do. But make no mistake about it, Joshua A. Norton was never really the king, but he sure believed he was. Who is the true king? Many have never fully realized how important this question is. In fact, I would say that this might be the most important question you should answer this Christmas season. Who is the true king? Now, when I say king, I mean who's in control, who, who rules, who, who is the one that we should submit to? Everyone needs to answer this question. Every person here, every person on earth, everyone that you come in contact needs to answer this question. Who is it? Who is the true king? Who is your king? As we continue in Colossians 1, I hope we had a chance this past week to read Colossians 1, maybe on more than one occasion. I would encourage you, the rest of the, this December, set, set aside uh, other things that you do during the day for, for five to 10 minutes and read Colossians 1 multiple times this week. Because we enter a section here in verses 9 through 17 that displays a king. And we're celebrating Advent the second week of Advent, and for centuries, the church has, has taken the weeks prior to Christmas to look right at Jesus Christ. They want to see Jesus. They want to, to listen and to study and to learn more of Christ and why he came to earth. And <clears throat> there really is uh, no other passage in Scripture that gives a good a, a viewpoint of Christ as our king as the one we're going to look at this morning in Colossians 1. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Colossians 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17. And in this passage, you're going to see Jesus is our cosmic king and Jesus as our personal king. Two points this morning. Jesus as our cosmic king and Jesus as our personal king. The first point hits everyone here seated. Jesus is your cosmic king whether you understand it or not. The second point, though, is much more direct, and it only impacts those that have surrendered their lives to Christ. Jesus is your personal king. To have Christ as your personal king means that you have been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. And so one section of this passage shows us the kingship of Jesus, that is, the regardless of reception. The other section shows us the kingship of Jesus that is recognized and enjoyed by those that are his. One is cosmic, one is personal, okay? He is king of the cosmos, the, the universe, but, but he can also be the king of your life. This is important stuff, huge stuff for us to consider this morning. So follow with me as I read 
Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 17, and I want you to, to pick out and notice in this passage those, those two designations, the cosmic king and the personal king. Starting in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen? Jesus is our cosmic king and Jesus is our personal king. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can join together and to worship you, to focus on you. And we ask God that you would come and, and you would teach your people this morning, that you would speak through me. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to begin with Jesus as our cosmic king. And, and to do this, we're going to look at the end of the passage, verses 15 through 17. There, in those verses, do we see this picture as Jesus as our cosmic king. He is the king over everything. This is what these three verses is talking about. Although some religions think that God came from the world or is in the world, a pantheistic view, that they say that God is the world. But the Bible teaches us something different. God has always existed. He was here before anything else was created. And not only that, but he is the creator and the sustainer. And in him, all things hold together. So that means for us as Christians, we see ourselves as creation by a loving creator, God, who, who not only made us, but, but everything here. And because he is the creator, there is order. There is structure to his creation. There's a physical order to our world and there's a, a moral order to our world. First, a, a physical order. What do I mean here? Well, there's consist consistency in nature, right? I mean, if something freezes at a particular temperature, then when the situation is the same again, it will always freeze at that same temperature. If it's hot outside at 95 degrees with no wind one day and the next day there's no wind and it's 95 degrees, it's also hot. If a needle punctures your skin one day and draws blood, well, what happens the next time the needle punctures the skin? It will draw blood again. There's consistency in nature. If I weigh a rock from my backyard today and it weighs two pounds, what do you think the weight of that rock will be tomorrow? Two pounds. If it's 500 pounds, we have a problem. There's consistency in, in, in nature. And there's peace then for us knowing that. And if, I don't know if you even think through this, but there's peace for that. That you know you go outside and it's going to be the same as it was. And consistency in nature means it's going to be the same. Upside down isn't right side up. It stays the same. Our own missionaries, Ryan and Stephanie Buzek, can safely drive to the airport today in Africa and get on a plane and know that aerodynamics are the same. So that their flight that they get on today, coming to America, will happen. Did you know that, by the way? Ryan and Stephanie are coming home. Just for a short trip, as her sister's getting married. So you're going to see them, hopefully, in a week. But isn't there peace for that? Pat and Alan Thatcher are getting on a plane on Tuesday to go see grandkids. Is there peace to know that things haven't changed out there in nature? And where does that come from? By chance, right? I mean, it's just chance. Right? Come on, people. It's not chance. It's, it's God. 
He holds it all together. And for the Christian, this proves yet again that there's order to our world. There is one who created everything. But to the atheists, it doesn't prove that to them that there's no God, but it sure confuses them. The orderliness of, of the universe boggles scientists. And, and just like having their hand waved right in their face, they can't see God. They don't see it as him. And for the atheists, this order, this, this consistency in nature is a problem and they have no solution. I think they have a solution. They have to explain their type of solution, but it's not a solution. And for us as a Christian, we don't have a problem. We know that there's a creator. And we know that there is someone there that holds everything together. But not only physical order, second, there's moral order. Many people in our world today say that there's no creator God, and so there's only visible things, not invisible says here in verse 16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him but non-religious people say no there is nothing supernatural there might be extraterrestrial but not supernatural there's no eternity there can't be, because if there's an eternity, then I have to deal with that. I have to answer to that. No, for them, it's only visible. It's not invisible. There's only the body. There's no soul. And listen, friends, you may be here this morning, and, and this is you. This is where you land. If, if this is you, if you believe that there's only the visible, only the explainable, then you should have a real problem with Christmas. In fact, you have a fake Christmas. Oh, you know, what do they say? Christmas is exciting. It's wonderful. Why? Well, the world believes it's wonderful because it's conditioning. We've been conditioned to believe it's wonderful. I mean, instead of singing Christmas carols that we know and love, we could hold hands and breathe in unison and love that. It's conditioned, they think. In other words, if you decide there's no God or, or you really don't believe in Christmas, it's okay because if you grew up in America, Christmas still lives deep in your heart, especially in your neocortex, up in your brain, because it's stored millions of, of, of neural impulses. It's stored there in a section of your brain that gives emotional meaning to memories. It's uh, amygdala, part of your brain, that sends tears to your eyes when you smell Christmas cookies. When, when, when you see a loved one baking in the kitchen, when you hear silent night, or when you see lights glimmering on a tree, or, or smell the food, or hear the songs, or see people dressed in, in their Christmas garb, or go to the mall, or see Black Friday sales, it's all in your head. And what they're trying to say is, is Christmas is just conditioning. You've just been conditioned for this. It's because you've always done it. And because you've always done it, you'll get the warm, fuzzy feelings. You see, if you have no creator God, then all you have is visible. All you have from the world's vantage point is chemical reactions. And if this is true, then there's no moral order to our world. And if there's no moral order, then how dare we say that something's good and something else is bad? How, how dare we do that? It's only chemical reactions in our brain. It's only conditioning. And if there's no moral order to our world, then our entire society falls apart. It, it disintegrates right before us, and we're left with a mess. You know, the world knows that there's darkness. We, we hear about it, and we read about it all the time. We read about the evil that the world recognizes. They, they recognize that things are wrong. And, and if they say this and they're convinced of it, then there has to be moral order. There has to be a right. And here's where it's get, it gets sticky. I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with people. This is where it gets sticky. If, if there's a right, then there has to be someone who says it's right. And who says it's right? 
You know, there's a, a moral order and a physical order to our world, and there's one, our passage says, who holds it all together. See, for the Christian, there's no problem with this. But we're not, we're not rattling our brain trying to figure this out and, and sort through it. No, we get joy from this and peace. And we see this and we believe it and we read it and we sing it and we celebrate it every year at Christmas. Not because it's just conditioning, because it's real. We know that uh, we're joyful at Christmas, not because of our neocortex, but it's the same reason that Mary exclaimed in Luke 1, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary knew it. It wasn't conditioning. It was joy in knowing deep down in her bones that the Savior had come. And he says here in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul is talking about the universe here among other things that we'll look at later. And he says this phrase, this incredible phrase, verse 17, in him all things hold together. In him there is stability, there is unity, there's, there's fitness, there's cohesiveness, and it's put together. And if it's, if it's not together, then it's falling apart. If it's not tight, if it's not connected in unity, then it's apart, it's, it's disconnected, it's a mess. And it's not just the universe that he's talking about here. Not just the universe he's talking about here. He's going to connect this, this, this cosmic rule of Jesus, to a personal rule of his creation. This is where the cosmic king enters into the personal life in verses 9 through 14. We're not there yet, though. It says here, you know, Jesus Christ is the quality visual representation of God, the the preeminent one over all created beings. Because of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the the seen and the unseen, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities. All things were established through Jesus and for Jesus, and he has existed before all things. And in Jesus, all things fit together perfectly and are kept. And the universe is a a cosmos, a a well-ordered thing. It's not in upheaval. It's it's because it's under the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. He's holding everything together. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And now look at your life. Is it well-ordered or is it in upheaval? And here is what Paul is saying to us. He says, to the, to the degree you have your life under the kingship of Jesus Christ, to that degree your life will hold together. And to the degree you're not under his lordship, his kingship, and not under his, his mastery, and not under his obedience, to that degree your life will fall apart. And you may say, Jeff, you don't understand what I've been going through. You don't understand that I've lost a loved one. I've lost my job. I'm, I'm now single or I'm, I'm being disrespected. And, and you're saying, my life is falling apart. But here in verse 17, it says the only way your life falls apart is that you walk away from your king and your reaction to those circumstances in your life have placed yourself as king now of your own life. And Jesus is no longer there. You're no longer submitting to him. It doesn't mean that those things will never happen in your life when you're under the kingship and lordship of Jesus. It means we are held together by the king when those things happen. So I ask, how how much are you dependent under the kingship of Jesus? Things happen. Bad things happen. Unplanned things happen. And what's our reaction? What, What do we do? 
It says here in 17, in him all things hold together. In him you hold together. If you're not holding together, you need to get into him. And that's what Paul is saying to us in this passage. Just as Jesus holds the, the world together and all that's in it with his lordship and his kingship, he will hold you tighter with his lordship. So this leads to the second point. Jesus as our personal king. How does Christ hold us together? How does he do this? Well, the answer is in verses 9 through 14. A handbook, a, a blueprint for our lives. Paul, again, reminding you, he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae, and he's writing to these believers, and he says in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's so much truth in these verses. I want to take the rest of our time to unpack it here and apply it to us. Paul is teaching us. He's very pastoral here in his writing. He, he's saying that there's a process of sanctifying work in the life of believer. Being a Christian is a process of understanding the will and desire of the king. It is growing in your understanding of what the king wants for your life. And some of you understand this. You came to me last week after the sermon and shared what the Lord is teaching you and how he's growing you. And that's a process. And you have your hands on the, the gospel plow now, going through your life, keeping your eyes on Jesus. You, you know, and I want to encourage you, this is a process. We aren't saved and sanctified in one blink of an eye. God knows this. He knows it's a process, and he's the one growing us. So take heart. Take heart, parents, as you're parenting your kids. It's a process, right? We, we, we sometimes forget this as moms and dads when we parent our children. We don't want a process. What do we want? Come on, parents, tell me now. We want immediate response, immediate obedience. And we, we, we intend for that, to teach them. But listen, look at your own life. I've challenged myself multiple times. God's challenged me this week. Jeff, you got to look at your life. It's a process. This is where I'm at right now in my life, standing behind the, the gospel plow for my life and with Christ's help, directing the hearts of my kids. And, and it's all eyes on Jesus, all focused towards Jesus. And it's a process. This takes time. It takes belief. It takes understanding. It takes repentance. And so to get under his lordship, you have to have this process, and all of your life will be learning what God wants. And so Paul says he is praying that they would be filled with this knowledge of God's desire for their life, and with wisdom and discernment, and that they would lead lives in a manner worthy of God himself, being completely one with God, and, and, and with delight, and producing good fruit of obedience to his desires for their life, and enlarging their understanding of God's will for them. And that they would grow in their capability to be controlled by God because of his glorious might so that they can withstand with long suffering and with delight. And that's what he's praying here through all this. In all this, he's saying your life comes together the more that you are under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And you say, how do we do that? And the first thing is you enter that into that kingship, under the kingship. And second, you grow as you're under that kingship. So first, you enter under the kingship. And the way you enter is in verses 12 through 14. He, he, he lays it out for us. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And, and there's a word in this 
the section here that is huge for our understanding, okay? It's a blunt word, a brilliant and radical word for us. And it's the word in verse 12, qualified. Underline that. Highlighted in your digital device. And maybe another version says enabled. I don't like that word. I don't think it's correct. It's best translated qualified. It's right there in verse 12. Do you see it? Giving thanks to the Father, he starts. He says, showing gratitude to God the Father. It's a present active verb. We are continuing to show gratitude to God our Father. And for what? Well, this is the gold. He says it here. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has qualified us. It has happened. It isn't happening. He isn't making us qualified. We are qualified. And literally what that word means is we are now worthy. What Paul is saying is that God has worthied you. He has made you worthy to be a part of the kingdom of light. You who are in Christ, you Christian, are now worthy. You are co-heirs with Christ. You're receiving the inheritance, he says. You are sons and daughters of the king. Folks, this should really bake your noodle. Come on. This is huge. Because if you weren't, if you're not part of the king now, under the king, what, what were you before? You're outside. We would say you're lost. And maybe you've heard this, or maybe you're saying this. You say, or you've heard, I will never be worthy to enter into heaven. All that I've done, all that I've thought. And in one aspect from the scripture, you're right. In yourself, you will never be worthy. But this is how important this verse is to our theology. Because when you are redeemed, you're no longer standing in yourself. You're standing in Christ. And he has worthied you. You have now been qualified. It's complete as a Christian. And this is counterintuitive to the normal person to understand in our world. It, look, look again, it doesn't say, do this, obey this, become this, and then you become qualified. Because that's how our world works, right? To be qualified, I have to go to seven classes and pass the test. Then I can be qualified, or I have to get this degree to be qualified. It's counterintuitive to what, to what we understand in our world. That's not what the scripture says here. God is not standing at the top of the mountain, looking down and cheering us on. Come on, come on, work, you can do it, get up here. That's not what he's saying. Oh God, get this, God. God has come down the mountain. And through Jesus Christ, he has qualified us. And this should impact us. This is the gospel, friends. Stop striving to accomplish this. You can't do it. Jesus has done it. And every other religion has their one on the mountain and everyone else is trying. They're striving to get up there. And the truth is, he came down to us. And he qualified us. He, he made us worthy. And when you share this with your kids or your coworkers, or your family at Christmas or your neighbors, and they say, how can this be? This doesn't make rational sense. The answer, my friends, is in the text. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's because of Christ. He has redeemed us. The word is also translated ransom. We have been ransomed. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that word means, ransom? It means there is an exchange for a prisoner, a captive. It's giving an exchange to get someone out of prison, to get someone out of bondage, to, to free someone from slavery. And we have been ransomed from the slave market of sin. We have been freed. Folks, this is the great exchange. 
This is Christ taking our unworthiness and bearing it on the cross, and we get his worthiness. We are freed. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And we are told that this redemption is in him, the son whom God loves. He, he took our unworthiness. Now, does that mean that he literally became rebellious and disobeying? No. He stood in the place of the unworthy one. He received what the unworthiness deserved. And so when you become a Christian, there has been an exchange. His life for yours. Christ is your worthiness. And because of this, we can move back to verses 9 through 12 and see what the, what the worthy life should be as we walk with Christ. Before we get there, I want to go back to verse 17. I don't want this verse to escape from our minds and our memories here because outside of Christ, you would continue to try to worthy yourself. Many are in that spot and they need to earn, they need to do. And you would try to make yourself acceptable and you would continue to fail. God is the one who worthied us. Another way of looking at this is that he has made us fit. The translation is, we're fit. We're, we are now all that we should be for salvation. We are fit into Christ. So that verse 17 comes out again. In him, all things hold together. I found it interesting as I studied this, uh, and looking back to the Greek, this, this phrase, this word of, of, of fit, has an application to woodworking. Is anyone a woodworker here? Come on, raise it high, woodworkers. I've been fascinated with woodworking the last few years. It gives me a little of an escape from a house of girls to the garage for a little bit. But I'm not very good at it. So I've been reading and watching and seeing, and, and there's different types of work, woodworking, different parts of it. I'm not going to explain all the details, so you're not going to get bored, I guarantee you. Uh, but there's different types of joinery that joins woods and a dovetail joint. And I've, I'm fascinated by this. I'm not going to try it. I'll watch, I'll observe, I'll buy, but I'm not going to try. It's fascinating to me. And, and, and I appreciate all of the hard work and the precision that goes into this. And it's, it's captivating to me to see how, how this works, the dovetail joint. And, and Madeline and I saw a lot of this when we were in Japan. We were walking around and we saw many old temples. And you just, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking um, how it's, what, what, what's all there, the environment. Then I'm looking at the building and just staring at it. And all of these old structures are joined together. And I say to Tim, like, there's no nails, there's no glue. And he's like, no, it's these, these, these joints. Hundreds of years old, these buildings are. No nails, no glue. Just these joints, dovetails and mortise joints, all sorts. And intriguing to see this, these huge, beautiful structures, incredibly crafted, and they're sturdy, they're strong. And you look at it, and you see that it fits. And you begin to think, it looks as though they're made for each other. They were. And when Christ saved us, he worthied us. He made us fit with God. And in him, all things hold together. What does that mean? It means that if you get away from the kingship of Jesus Christ, you will fall apart. And when you get closer to the kingship of Christ, you come together. If I were to walk around those old buildings in Japan and start pulling out pieces of wood, what would happen? Fall apart. They were made to fit. If I pull them out from the place that they were made for, they would fall apart. And when you take someone away from the kingship of Christ, you fall apart. You fall apart spiritually. You fall apart socially, sometimes fall apart physically, because in him, all things hold together. 
as a pastor, when people come and they, they have issues and struggles, the first couple questions I'm asking is, what's your relationship to the king, to Christ? So if they're falling apart and it's evident, it makes sense then. You know, we see this in, in 1 Samuel, when we've gone through 1 Samuel, right? We, we've seen the effects of, of God's people when they walk away from God, when God tells them what to do and how to live. And what happens, friends? Things fall apart. They walk away from the kingship of God and they want some other king for their life. And things fall apart. It was never meant to be that way. They, they choose a different way and it never works, right? They walk away from the manual that we are given to live by. You know, right off the beginning, right off in Genesis, God gives a manual to Adam and Eve for life, right? What was the first rule? Tell me. Don't eat from that tree, right? That was it. That was the owner's manual. That was it. And what do they do? Well, you know, in a few weeks, actually, some of you are going to unwrap some, some incredible present from under the tree, and, and, and it's going to be a box, and it's going to look fascinating, and you're going to open the box, and there is a manual. And I know some of you are going to be the reader of that book. You're going to be like, stop, don't touch it. I have to read the manual. And then there's a whole host of you that's going to say, what manual? And you're going to mess with it. And you think, ah, oh, I got this. What's the big deal? This goes here, this goes there, I've got this. But you see, there's, there's that one thing that says if you don't do it the right way, that thing will blow up or fall apart. So follow directions, read the book. In fact, this happened to me just on Friday morning. We woke up in our house Friday morning Shivering, our house was 55 degrees, went downstairs, and the thermostat just stopped working. For the last year and a half, I've been looking at smart home thermostats and vowed that I wouldn't buy one unless mine died. So I looked at Katie and said, now's the time. Went to the store, found this little device, came home, pulled it open, looked through it, and the fleeting thought was, I've got this. I've never installed a thermostat in my life, but I've got this. And common sense kicked in, Jeff, read the book. You see, God gave Adam and Eve one rule, don't eat from that tree. And the reason wasn't because God was trying to determine their diet. But God is the one who determines life. And he says, there's this one rule. And he more or less says, you, you can either determine what is right or wrong, how things work, what you should do, or you follow my determination. I created this world. It is my world. You can follow yourself or you can follow me. I heard a great quote this week from the late J. Vernon McGee that says, this is God's universe and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. So when you get your own universe, I guess you can set the rules. And until then, we need to come under the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ. He made it. He owns it. He knows what he's doing. And if you try to do it on your own, in your own way, it will fall apart. It will blow apart. And so he gives us his word, how we should live, how we should grow. Do you see it there in verses 9 through 12? Paul is praying for them. He hasn't stopped praying that they would be filled with the understanding of God's desires for their life, that they would have wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is knowing what to do when the, the rule book runs out, that they would understand how to live. And then he says, and we would walk in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And stop there for a moment. Obedience isn't listed there. No, instead it says that we would live to please him. It's a trait of delightfully yielding to the will of another for their happiness. Now, if someone asks you to do something for them, there are two ways that you can do it. If you're indifferent to that person, then their pleasure is done at the expense of your pleasure. 
You muscle through it. You, 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 you pay for it because your pleasure pays for it. If you're indifferent about that person, that's what happens. It's just compliance. This could be labeled as obedience. You get it done, but you don't really have a desire to please them. You just want to get it done. But what if you love that person? What if you admire that person? What if your heart is totally committed to that person? You see, then things change drastically. You can serve them. You can seek their pleasure, and it doesn't cost you anything. Your your pleasure doesn't pay for it. It enjoys it because you love them, because you desire to please them, because they mean something to you. Their happiness is your happiness. That is the pleasure of giving pleasure to, to people to serve them. And I understand, I don't know if you know this, but from my frequent visits to the Federal Way store of Chick-fil-A, that employees are trained to respond in one way. My pleasure. I, I recognize that all employees that believe are believers in Christ, although I do know some, please visit the Chick-fil-A in Federal Way. I know the owner. Plus, the Chick-fil-A sauce is the only sauce to have, right? Do I need to go on this tangent? Sweet tea, they have sweet tea. Anything else? There's so much stuff there. We can go on, but that's not the point. I believe, though, in this aspect, that the service would be more enjoyable for those employees if they believe that there is actually loving and caring for, for the person they serve. But bringing it down to home, bringing it down to your marriage, Do we serve one another out of pleasure, meaning we desire their pleasure, to please them? You know, bring this back again then to God. This is as believers. Paul says that he's praying that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And it's different. If if you know you are qualified for the kingdom of God, if you know Jesus Christ came to die for you, to be your ransom, to be broken so that you could come and connect and have life now in God, you would seek to please him in all that you do. Because as you serve him for his pleasure, it brings pleasure to you because you love him. His pleasure becomes your pleasure. Serving him and sacrificing for him is really no sacrifice at all. But if you're indifferent to someone, then their happiness is an expense. Your happiness. If you love someone, their happiness is your happiness. It's when we remember the gospel. We remember the love of the Father and sending the Son in our lives And he spent his life for the pleasure and obedience of the king. And through that, when we remember that, we will bear fruit for for God and our good work, he says. Not because we're earning anything. We're doing it because we love him. We want to serve him. And then in verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Fruitful living as believers is only done in dependent living in Christ, in him. All things hold together. Living under his lordship for our lives will bring about fruit. And in that fruitful living, we'll be strengthened with his power. And we'll be able to endure this life. And not just endure, but do it with great joy, he says. Because we know the one we serve. And what a life this is, friends. Here are three reactions to a sermon like this. First, you're, you're here and you're growing. You love Jesus and you're still challenged and rehearsing this glorious gospel in Colossians 1 has now infused you for another week to go back out into this world. And praise the Lord. Be encouraged with this. This is one of the reasons you come to church each week to, to worship with with God's people to be fed by the word of God and refueled to go back into the world and serve him and and desire to please him. So that may be your reaction to this. Second, you're here and you know that you've blown it. And you look at your life and you, 
you know that things are falling apart. And what's happened is you have tried to be king of your own life. You have tried to rule and reign and to do what you think is right. And listen, friends, you have made a mess of things and you know it. You, you see your life falling apart. You're, you're not under the full lordship and kingship of Christ. You're, you're under the lordship of self. And stuff around you is in shambles. Maybe it's the relationship you're in. Maybe it's work. You've tried to take control of your life, and in so doing, you have pulled yourself now into the place where Christ needs to be. And I'm not trying to, to put you down, friends, because we've all done this. But I want you to hear me. There is a better king. There's a better king than yourself. And he recognizes this is a process. There is a better king that you can place yourself under that won't burden you and, and bury you. He won't take from you. He won't leave you. And Jesus is this king that will bring peace to the mess that's in your life right now. And I can promise you this by the word of God that you will get peace that passes all understanding. Well, third, last, there are others of you and you are your own king and you think everything is working out just fine. It's no big. Life seems to be floating along just fine. You're satisfied. There's no big issues. You're happy. At least that's what you tell yourself. And you are like Joshua Norton that we heard at the beginning. Starting around the city like you own the joint. You've made yourself king. But deep down you know that you're not. You're just not going to do anything about it. You know who's on your throne. You are. And that's how it's going to be. And in your pride, some of you are going to try to stay on the throne and rule until the day you die. And you say, I don't need God. You have you. But listen, this cosmic king's tender patience will not always be there. There will come a day when this king will return as judge and on that day, any notion of indifference from this king towards your rebellion will evaporate like your breath in the cold. The Bible says that on that day, men and women will try to hide in the mountains. And the mountains will flee before the coming of the Lord. Think of that. How terrifying is that? We see a mountain all the time, right? Mount Rainier will move. Jesus is coming. The mountains will say, I'm out of here. You cannot hide behind me. Jesus will see all. I'm not making this stuff up, friends. And if you think that you can just stand there, proud, full of yourself, and Jesus will somehow cower to you, it's not going to happen. And you need to humble yourself before Christ. You need to humble yourself before this king. And you need to believe in Christ. He came at great cost to be your personal king. We're just two weeks away from Christmas. It's a favorite holiday of mine because you can see and hear the gospel so clearly from those that are involved in that morning when Christ came and when the king was born. And on that Christmas morning, the angels did not sing, here, here is how you can work. They did not sing a song, here is how you can work to get to heaven. Because, friends, that's not good news. No one would want to sing about that. They didn't say, now unto us is given this day 
a good course on good behavior. Instead, it says, unto us is born this day a savior. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, King, Prince of Peace. He's saying for joy, because this was good news. Peace comes. Peace comes because he's king. Let's pray. Father, we know that our world is ordered by the king of the universe, our cosmic king. But we've also felt the need of your presence more because at times our lives have been a mess. And when situations have come into our life, we've, we've stepped away from underneath the, the kingship of Jesus, thinking that we can handle this. And we recognize from your word, the answer is that we come under the kingship of Jesus more. And we know this because we read that you are the one who holds everything together. And it's through Christ and through his sacrifice for us on the cross that we are qualified to receive the inheritance, to be sons and daughters of the king. It's only because of Jesus and him taking our unworthiness upon himself that we can now be worthy. We thank you, Jesus. Father, help us to live lives that please you reminding ourselves of the love that we have for our King. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.